Chapter Forty Seven of Great Expectations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter Forty Seven. Some weeks passed without bringing any change. We waited for Wemmick, and he made no sign. If I had never known him out of Little Britain, and had never enjoyed the privilege of being on a familiar footing at the castle, I might have doubted him. Not so for a moment, knowing him as I did. My worldly affairs began to wear a gloomy appearance, and I was pressed for money by more than one creditor. Even I myself began to know the want of money. I mean of ready money in my own pocket, and to relieve it by converting some easily spared articles of jewellery into cash. But I had quite determined that it would be a heartless fraud to take more money from my patron in the existing state of my uncertain thoughts and plans. Therefore I had sent him the unopened pocket-book by Herbert to hold in his own keeping, and I felt a kind of satisfaction, whether it was a false kind or a true, I hardly know, in not having profited by his generosity since his revelation of himself. As the time wore on, an impression settled heavily upon me that Estella was married. Fearful of having it confirmed, though it was all but a conviction, I avoided the newspapers, and begged Herbert, to whom I had confided the circumstances of our last interview, never to speak of her to me. Why I hoarded up this last wretched little rag of the robe of hope that was rent and given to the winds, how do I know? Why did you who read this commit that not dissimilar inconsistency of your own last year, last month, last week? It was an unhappy life that I lived, and its one dominant anxiety, towering above all its other anxieties, like a high mountain above a range of mountains, never disappeared from my view. Still, no new cause for fear arose. Let me start from my bed as I would, with the terror fresh upon me that he was discovered. Let me sit listening, as I would with dread, for Herbert's returning step at night, lest it should be fleeter than ordinary, and winged with evil news. For all that, and much more to like purpose, the round of things went on, Condemned to inaction and a state of constant restlessness and suspense, I rowed about in my boat, and waited, 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 as I best could. There were states of the tide when, having been down the river, I could not get back through the eddy-chafed arches and starlings of old London Bridge. Then I left my boat at a wharf near the custom-house, to be brought up afterwards to the temple stairs. I was not averse to doing this, as it served to make me and my boat a commoner incident among the waterside people there. From this slight occasion sprang two meetings that I have now to tell of. One afternoon, late in the month of February, I came ashore at the wharf at dusk. I had pulled down as far as Greenwich with the ebb tide, and had turned with the tide. It had been a fine, bright day, but had become foggy as the sun dropped and I had had to feel my way back among the shipping, pretty carefully. 
Both in going and returning I had seen the signal in his window, all well. As it was a raw evening, and I was cold, I thought I would comfort myself with dinner at once, and as I had hours of dejection and solitude before me if I went home to the temple, I thought I would afterwards go to the play. The theatre where Mr. Wopsle had achieved his questionable triumph was in that waterside neighbourhood. It is nowhere now and to that theatre I resolved to go. I was aware that Mr. Wopsle had not succeeded in reviving the drama, but on the contrary had rather partaken of its decline. He had been ominously heard of, through the playbills, as a faithful black, in connection with a little girl of noble birth, and a monkey. And Herbert had seen him as a predatory tartar of comic propensities, with a face like a red brick, and an outrageous hat all over bells. I dined at what Herbert and I used to call a geographical chop-house, where there were maps of the world in porter-pot rims on every half-yard of the tablecloths, and charts of gravy on every one of the knives. To this day there is scarcely a single chop-house within the Lord Mayor's dominions which is not geographical, and wore out the time in dozing over crumbs, staring at gas, and baking in a hot blast of dinners. By and by I roused myself and went to the play. There I found a virtuous boatswain in His Majesty's service, a most excellent man, though I could have wished his trousers not quite so tight in some places, and not quite so loose in others, who knocked all the little men's hats over their eyes, though he was very generous and brave, and who wouldn't hear of anybody's paying taxes, though he was very patriotic. He had a bag of money in his pocket, like a pudding in the cloth, and on that property married a young person in bed furniture, with great rejoicings, the whole population of Portsmouth, nine in number at the last census, turning out on the beach to rub their own hands and shake everybody else's, and sing, Phil, Phil! A certain dark-complexioned swab, however, who wouldn't fill, or do anything else that was proposed to him, and whose heart was openly stated, by the boatswain, to be as black as his figurehead, proposed to two other swabs to get all mankind into difficulties, which was so effectually done, the swab family having considerable political influence, that it took half the evening to set things right, and then it was only brought about through an honest little grocer with a white hat, black gaiters, and red nose, getting into a clock with a gridiron, and listening, and coming out, and knocking everybody down from behind with the gridiron whom I couldn't confute with what he had overheard. This led to Mr. Wopsles, who had never been heard of before, coming in with a star and garter on, as a plenipotentiary of great power direct from the Admiralty, to say that the swabs were all to go to prison on the spot and that he had brought the boatswain down the Union Jack, as a slight acknowledgment of his public services. The boatswain, unmanned for the first time, respectfully dried his eyes on the jack, and then cheering up, and addressing Mr. Wopsle as, Your Honour, solicited permission to take him by the fin. Mr. Wopsle, conceding his fin with a gracious dignity, was immediately shoved into a dusty corner, while everybody danced a hornpipe, and from that corner, surveying the public with a discontented eye, became aware of me. 
The second piece was the last new grand comic, Christmas Pantomime, in the first scene of which it pained me to suspect that I detect Mr. Wopsle with red worsted legs under a highly magnified phosphoric countenance and a shock of red curtain fringe for his hair, engaged in the manufacture of thunderbolts in a mine, and displaying great cowardice when his gigantic master came home, very hoarse, to dinner. But he presently presented himself